The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. So the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good night. Sometimes I stand between the sidewalk and the sky. And just staring through the clouds as they pass by You have to leave the ground to learn to fly Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio with my co-host, Lauren Deller-Blake, on the West Coast. How are you this morning, Lauren? Good morning, Catherine. I am well. How are you? I'm fine. Business coach and CEO of Big Fish Nation. And you can go to bigfishnation.com for anyone who's just joining us. That's, you can go to, if you want to know more about Lauren and what you're doing. And we have to check up on you, my dear, out on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have two guests this morning. Lynn Griffin. Author of Life Without Summer. Her new book is Sea Escape. And it's a novel, but I think it has it's not a memoir, but uh, it kind of borders on that. It's all about women, relationships, balancing their lives, all the stuff we talk about on the show. Excellent. Yeah. And then we also have uh, Dr. Uh, Ali Reza Atri, MD, PhD from Mass General Hospital uh, in Boston, Department of Neurology. And she will be discussing with us Alzheimer's disease, um, she's been to a major conference, which was in July. Alzheimer's is this horrendous disease, which is beginning to affect more and more Americans. Um, the number of Americans suffering from Alzheimer's disease continues to rise by 200 by 2050. I probably won't be around then to get Alzheimer's. Between 11 million and 15 million individuals, wow. age 65 and older. So it's a huge, huge problem, and it involves a lot of different issues. So we'll be talking about that. But before, Lauren, my sons are always working for me, right? Talk about this. If they see something that's interesting, they'll email me. So I get an email this morning from one of my sons, and he says, this would be a great topic for you guys to talk about. And it is, this was on CNN.com. This was on, on, on the net. Sugar Babe favors negotiated infidelity. Yes, that was last night's topic. Yes. Yeah. Negotiated Infidelity. Uh, Holly Hill is the author. She's from Australia. Uh She's in her 30s, late 30s, uh, 39 at the time, I guess, she wrote this book. And she says that women should negotiate infidelity with their husbands. She was all over it last night. I was watching. And what do you think? Well, it was an interesting group of people. I don't remember all the names. Holly was one of them. And um, Holly was the one that said, absolutely, they're going to do it anyway, and they're doing it mentally and emotionally and just not always physically. But if you give them permission, they'll go do it physically, and they'll be happier people. And you'll be happier because they're happier. It was interesting. I, I, don't agree. I, I can't imagine negotiating that with my husband, but you know, 
who knows? Yeah, I'm, you know what? Negotiating it, I think just the fact to me that if you negotiate infidelity, it loses the zest of the infidelity. Because well, part of infidelity part, is the excitement of the whole thing. And you're, isn't it? Because you're trying to get away from this kind of mundane sex relationship that you have with your spouse or your partner. Even though you love them, you want to be with them. But, you know, sleeping with the same person for 30, 40, 50 years monogamously is, doesn't really sound that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And what they're saying, what she was saying is, um, it's not that exciting, so why not spice it up? And so the other woman, and I can't remember her name, I wish I could. It's so funny, I wish I knew you were going to talk about this today. So the other woman was saying, there, so don't necessarily negotiate infidelity. Do what they want. If they have a crazy fantasy, go with them with the, you know, go in, go do the crazy fantasy with them and never hold back. You know, that if you have a crazy fantasy, you should be allowed to follow it out just as they should be too and go, you know, do it with them. But that's something different. That's okay. All right. So that's you different. That was a different thing. woman didn't say that. She, so she was disagreeing with her about negotiating infidelity. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that's a substitute. I mean, that, that's, that's good. One should do that. Probably you should do that anyway. I mean, go with your fantasies, whatever your partner's fantasy is. I mean, I, if you can. Absolutely, yeah. Right. That makes it exciting, but you're still doing it with the, sa- it the same the partner. You're still doing it with the same person. Yeah. So you so don't think it's a, a replacement for infidelity? There is no replacement for infidelity. I don't infidelity. think so either. I really don't. Just like there's, no, like, and the other woman said there was a third woman who actually was in a relationship and her husband had, a, you know, had an affair outside of the marriage. And she said, you know, there's always one person that never gets over it. Always. It doesn't matter. She doesn't care the situation. She always feels like it's a deal breaker. I know a couple who one partner had an affair outside the marriage, and it was a major issue when the partner found out, the other person, and obviously caused a lot of pain and a lot of stuff, uh, split up for a while, never got divorced, but the other person began having an affair as well, the one who was cheated on, cheated on, and kind of after that... um, not kind of. They they were able to reconcile their differences because they were this. They were, they were on equal playing ground. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And and it worked. And it so, was because they didn't get all crazy. Okay, that's it. We have to split up, and you know that's the end of it. So there's. It is like, interesting. I um I have an aunt and uncle who've passed away since since this story, but they were married. They one had an affair. He did. And they split up for 10 years and got back together 10 years later and had an amazing, amazing relationship. Ended up having my cousin, who is the same age I am now, and both of his parents are now dead. But they had an, I remember as a little kid watching their relationships going, oh, my God, they're the happiest people I know. So they had a 10-year hiatus. Did they see each other during that time, or they just... It's a great question. I don't know how much or how little. I have a feeling they just maintained contact, and there was probably always an attraction there. They were an amazing couple. And went off and did their own thing, and then they came back together again. Yep, after realizing that they were, you know, that was the person they both wanted to be with. Well, I think that's a good lesson because I think that, you know, part of it, it's what we're talking about, that you have to, um, you have to allow for a lot of different kinds of situations within a relationship. 
and not have this expectation that there's a certain way of having a relationship, and if it doesn't work out, then it's over. Right, right. I mean, I think this, in different, well, in this article at least, and I don't know if they discussed this last night, um, people, when you negotiate the infidelity, uh-huh. it's Holly Hill, she said that her her partner, her husband, I guess it was, he could go out, he could sleep with women, but he couldn't stay overnight, and he couldn't be affectionate with them. Well, I mean, that's kind of hard to dictate that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting negotiation. I don't know. I can't ima- I, I personally can't imagine negotiating it. Can you? No. Would you negotiate that? No, I wouldn't be able to. Uh, but, I, you know, I think... Uh, in the 70s, it was it was a little bit different, but there was a whole thing in the 70s, like from the 70s to the 80s, let's say, 1970 to 1980, where couples described their marriage as an open marriage. Yeah, exactly. I got it. Yeah, that was, and I don't, I don't think that's what she's talking about. No, she's it not seems talking different. About, well, but it's similar. It is similar because it's you're having a conversation about it. Yeah. You're having a conversation, you're talking about it, you're giving it, it's okay, you can have an affair outside the marriage. I think there's lots of people doing this. I, well, people are having affairs no matter what. Is Absolutely, what yep. But so, I think there's lots of people that are either, you know, putting up with it, you know, they know that the husband's having a, another relationship, and they just keep going or denying it. I think it happens all the time. Yeah, I do too. Well, it, it's all about, I guess, communicating with your partner, and you just have to decide what's best for both of you. And it yeah. depends on what stage of of the marriage you're in, also. Yep, I think that is true. That's, I mean, I think if you're at a stage maybe where you're having children and there's a lot of responsibility around the house, and there's, you know, do you have time to have an affair as well? Because you can't come home and take <laughs> care of the baby. What I know. So, you know um, and I would, quite frankly, resent it if my husband was choosing to do that. Yeah. Now, let's say you don't have children or you're 50 and the kids are grown up. You know, there's a lot of different stages that marriages go through, and maybe it fits in depending on what stage in the marriage you're at. Yeah, I do think that's true. Like, um, yeah, remember the couple, who were we talking about a couple weeks ago that you were shocked after 40 years they were getting um, divorced? Al Gore. That's right. Now, maybe he should have just gone and had an affair, and it would have been all fine. Yeah, that's a good example. And maybe he already is, but that maybe could be, they do. Right. Yeah, because they've had this history together. Because what's a relationship? A relationship really is the history that you've had together. Right, it's true. And there's something, you know, great about that. The history together. And I guess that's also part of the challenge. Yeah. So that's a perfect example. For 40 years, they, had, they felt like they had to split up. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they had to do what your cousin did, take two or three years off, and it's okay, and they can have an affair. However, they are people who are in the limelight, people who are out there, celebrities. Yeah, I and so that's people hard. are going to be judging them. Like They wouldn't be judging you or I in the same way. Right. I think that's tough. So there's that. People are always going to have affairs, men and women. That's what um, Holly says. Holly, that's what the author said. It's going to happen. Look at the Bible. Read the Bible, folks. The Bible. I mean, every King David, King this King, that King, even the lowlier people in the Bible, all the men had affairs all the time, and they, actually they took care of their concubines. They were part of the household. And yeah, that's yeah the whole... Yeah, and there's a lot of that too. I'm not, I wish there was more of that in some ways. <laughs> if, you're, if they're going to have an affair, let them chip in. Exactly. Don't try to 
exclude them but include them. It's it, kind of what Holly's saying, but not in, maybe really not quite in the same sophisticated way. But in the Bible, the concubines were all part of the household, and they did chip in, and they had the ba- and they had babies too. Yeah, it's interesting. And they and they contributed to taking care of the family and the house, and uh, so it was a very different social structure. But it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Anyway, uh, Holly Hill, and you can her book sold. It's popular. The topic is popular. Her book yeah, sold about twenty five thousand copies. Wow. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so she's making a lot of money off of this whole thing. Off infidelity, the smart woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our, our first guest coming up is here, and, but we're going to take a short break before we talk to her. Lynn Griffin, author of Sea Escape, which is a novel. A lot of truth to this novel. Lynn is a uh, nationally recognized expert on family life, and she teaches at the graduate level in Boston. You can go to her website at lynngriffin.blogspot.com. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, The Catherine Zoff Show with Lauren Deller Blake. News. Opinion. Can you hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Money. We love it, we hate it, and everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Laurie Lamantia each week for the program, Making Peace with Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. My co-host is Lauren Beller blake and our guest is lynn griffin lynn is author of sea escape um, she is this is her third her third book she's a nationally recognized expert on family life uh... she is also teaches teaches family studies at the graduate level and writing at the independent writing center in boston and you can go to her website lynngriffin.blogspot.com welcome to the show lynn nice to have you on this morning thank you for having me Yes. Well, it's great to have you because your book just came out, and I'm, uh, and it's been described in the New York Times as from Jenna Blum. Uh, Lynn Griffin's sea, sea Escape is a tender, heartfelt portrait of mothers and daughters, the attention we crave from each other, the secrets we hide, the unexpected ways our wishes are sometimes answered, and the walls come crumbling down. So I think that's a good introduction to, uh, to, talk, to discussing or to talking about your book. Um, it's a novel, but uh, and I don't want to say a memoir. But how? Cl- let's you know talk about the motivation for writing the novel. Sure. Well, I am a family life expert, as you said, and so I my background uh, has really been quite helpful in writing novels. Uh, my first novel and my second one about families. I feel like there is so much to delve into in terms of the complicated relationships within families, and my background helps me to do that. But this particular story, Sea Escape, was inspired by my own relationship with my mother. Uh, my father passed away when I was a teenager, and after he did, my mother was uh, was very bereft. And uh, In fact, I do a number of interviews and talks about what my mother suffered from, which is called per- uh, prolonged grief disorder. And um, when my mother passed in 2000, I came upon family letters, the love letters that my father had written to her. And it really gave me a glimpse inside the woman that she was. And my creative side of my brain took over, and I decided, what if there were a story in which a woman like myself came across letters, and instead of finding a glimpse of her sort of healthy mother, she would find secrets within her family. And so that is really where she escaped starts off. It starts off with a young woman finding her mother's love letters and finding out that her parents' relationship was very much different than what she imagined it to be. So, Lynn, you talk about prolonged grief disorder. Explain that to us, because actually, as a social worker, I, I don't know about you, Lauren, uh, I had, don't, um, I wasn't aware of that term. Sure. It, it actually is becoming even more um, brought into the spotlight because it, it is, it's really something that's gone on for years, which is that the normal grief trajectory has certain phases and feelings to it, uh, but for certain people, uh, they get stuck in that grief. And even though intellectually they want to move forward with their lives, they're physically, emotionally, and really on some spiritual level unable to do so. And so... A lot of researchers are now looking at imaging, um, you know, neurological imaging studies to see if the brain of a person who is sort of stuck in their grief, if, if you will, looks any different than a person who's going through the normal trajectory. And in fact, it brain, brain imaging studies say yes. Um, so we know that... So the brain looks people, different. How does it look different? Is the, 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 it, 
Um, it looks different in the sense that um, when the person is talking about their loss and if they're talking about what sort of um, they feel stuck, how they feel stuck, and if they're talking about the relationship, certain um, aspects of the brain light up in these imaging studies, which indicate that for some uh, for some reason, holding on to the grief is a therapeutic thing for the for the person, and so in some sense, they're unable to move through it because the grief is doing something for them. And so what uh, what clinicians are now recognizing is that in order to get a person unstuck from this type of grief, the therapeutic strategies have to be much more intense. There has to be more intensive um, one-on-one counseling, group counseling, and even medication to move a person out of this uh, Okay, so there are some pattern. secondary gains from from holding on to the grief. They're getting something out of it. Uh, the person who's suffering from the prolonged grief disorder. But, Lynn, does this grief have to necessarily be related to a loss of a relationship or could be a, a loss of a job or a loss of just any kind of a loss that was traumatic for that person? The the hallmarks of it really are twofold. <clears throat> One is that the person that suffers from prolonged grief disorder ha- is sort of predisposed or set up for it in the sense that they have a sort of glasses half-empty type of worldview. And so there, there is a propensity for depression, if you will, or they're, they're likely to, to suffer. And then the other aspect of it is that, um, the loss is profound. So it's, you know, the, the people that you talk to who suffer from this, it's the love of their life. It's the loss of a child. It's the enormity of the grief. Uh, a number of, uh, a number of people have talked about it post 9-11, that it is the intensity of the loss that you know, predisposes a person to being stuck. The breakup uh, of a marriage? It could be. Absolutely it could be. In fact, one woman got in touch with me. Uh, a number of people have gotten in touch with me saying that the character Helen in Sea Escape, who does suffer from prolonged grief disorder, uh, people have said to me, it was as if you were writing about me. And so I'm finding that really stunning that there's a whole group of people out there that don't feel that their story is, is well captured but are touched by sea escape in this way. But one woman wrote to me that her husband, out of the blue, told her one morning that he didn't love her anymore and he left her and she's been stuck, if you will, ever since. Um, so yes, again, it's the enormity to the person. It's the enormity so to the, the character person. in the book, uh, you're, I mean, you're getting a lot of response from readers that, yes. that they, more so than you anticipated or, you know, when you were writing the story, was this just going to, I know it's not just going to be, but obviously something cathartic for you to write about because part of it is your story, your own story, but were you surprised that there are so many people who can identify with, with the character uh, who's suffering from prolonged grief disorder? I have been very surprised, but, you know, it's interesting because I began writing fiction for myself because my family life work was so intense, counseling families, really hearing the things that pain and, and trouble and concern families. I felt that I needed an out, a creative outlet for myself, so I began writing fiction, and the first novel I wrote was Life Without Summer, which is about a mother who loses her daughter in a hit-and-run accident and can't come to terms with the fact that she doesn't know what happened. And this novel about the woman who finds her mother's letters and understands her parents' marriage in a new way, I have been stunned by the fact that I have heard from so many readers of both novels, uh, people who've read one or the other, and I, am do- I feel like I'm doing just as effective or perhaps even more so the family life work that I do on the sort of nonfiction side because so many people tell me that the stories and the characters' struggles 
um, they're learning things from them. I've had a number of people tell me that uh, that they're learning that they need to become uh, more active in their, their searching for treatment after reading about Laura and Helen and the way that the mother-daughter relationship uh, has been thwarted by Helen being trapped in, this, in, this, in the past. Um, so, so you're probably remarkable. reaching more people with your first novel and this second novel, Sea Escape, uh, actually doing a kind of group therapy, but uh, on a on a huge on a widespread level, I guess. You, or at least you, I mean, when you get people to identify, and then they probably go on to get more therapy, individual family therapy, whatever they need, or they are able to identify. Sometimes you read a book like yours, and it's like this aha moment too. Oh my God! You know this. This is who. This is what I'm struggling with. This is who I am. I have to say, it's been an unintended benefit of writing fiction, and I couldn't be happier. I feel that, in a way, writing stories that are not prescriptive—in other words, letting people walk the journey of the characters rather than telling the client, so to speak, what to do—has um, been more effective than even some of my private practice work. So, I'm I'm thrilled with the fact that there are readers out there having those aha moments. I couldn't be happier. Uh, well, Lynn, what about your family, your own family? I'm always curious as how to, how does your family respond? Because you're putting yourself out there. You're kind of, it's taking a risk, it would seem to me. And I, uh, you know, I don't know the makeup of your family, but is it, what's that like for you when they read the story? Or have they been involved all along as you've been writing it? Well, uh, a couple of things I'll say. Number one, I was very, very concerned about doing this because even though the impetus to write the story was my mother's struggle with prolonged grief, and I did actually find my father's letters, and I used some of my father's letters in the novel written by him uh, to flesh out the story, I, I was concerned about going down that road both personally because I didn't know if I really wanted to uh, disclose or or go down that road sort of publicly. Uh, but I also w- really cared about what my brother and sisters felt about using the letters, but also really bringing the prolonged grief situation to the spotlight because it was very painful for them, too, to see my mother trapped in the past. Um, so, as you say, I did involve them very early on. I asked permission. I exposed them to where the story was going. Uh, my my oldest sister is one of my trusted readers. She read the manuscript from the beginning. Uh, she has been invaluable to me in in reminding me that the way that the novel unfolds is very different than what my parents' story really was, that at a certain point in time, uh, though my parents were seeds for the story, I actually let go of the fact that the story was at all about them. Um, so she has been just terrific in reminding me of that and, and, and really supporting me and knowing that the novel is really doing good things for people. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds, as you're describing it, it's very therapeutic. Um, and, you know, different. you have siblings who could have very different reactions to, first of all, you're reading your father's letters. Did you feel voyeuristic in any way, like maybe I shouldn't have access to them? Uh, that could be, for, as I'm thinking about it for myself, um, you know, you're reading these, in, you know, there's these intimate documents or whatever between your parents and you're not only accessing them for yourself but for the world. Right. Is that... Well, I have to say, I, I, I'm, my first book is about boundaries in family life, so I have a lot of boundaries in family life myself. And I have to say that what I did was I made a commitment before I read the letters 
that if at any time I read anything that made me uncomfortable and that was clearly not meant for me to read, that I would stop. And interestingly enough, the letters were written between 1950 and 1954, and so we, we are talking a different time and place, and there really wasn't anything that made me uncomfortable. They were all just uh, longings for one another and, and a, a sort of ongoing conversation about the dreams they had for their life. And so Lynn, were you prepared I, to find something, you said if you saw something that you thought you shouldn't read about your parents' relationship as a result of having access to these letters that you would stop? But were you prepared for something maybe totally out of the realm of your thinking in terms of who they were and what their relationship was? That were you prepared to deal with something? You know, I, I, I can't think of a situation, but it could have been there. Sure, it could. It absolutely could have been there. And as I was as I was reading, I have to say, part of me was really hoping that it wasn't there, uh, <laughs> hoping that I wasn't going to stumble across something. Prepared to stop if I did. Really, you're right. I I did have thoughts of what will I do if I if I do find something. But I have to say, the the for a fiction writer, um, for me, the a novel really begins when there's a what if. And so as I was reading the letters, and I kept saying, what if there's something here? What if their relationship is different? And that never produced itself. It never came to be. That's when the novelist side of me took over, and I thought, but what if there was a different woman who came across letters, and there was a different story? And that's where The Escape was born. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Obviously, it just came out. I want listeners to know Lynn Griffin. That's who we've been talking to this morning. Also, she's author of Life Without Summer. The new book is Sea Escape, which is a novel. And you can go to Lynn's website online at Lynn Griffin, and it's L-Y-N-N-E dot blogspot dot com. It's been great having you on the show. I think we just kind of wet readers and listeners' appetites, so uh, they should go out and get the book. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We'll be back in a minute. Lauren Deller-Blake, Catherine Zox, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. It's World Talk Radio, and I'm your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Dr. Vijaya Nair. Together with my dear friend, Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there. If your pets could talk, they'd tell you to tune in to Pet Shop Talk. Join internationally recognized animal massage therapist Lola Jean Michelin every week for a show that covers everything from nutrition, health care, and training for your pet or animal. Lola and her guest experts will bring you the latest trends in the pet care industry. And even if you're not a pet owner, you'll find out why pets do the crazy things they do. Tune in each Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio, with my co-host, Lauren Beller-Blake. And our next guest is Dr. Ali Autry. He is a MD and PhD from Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, uh, Department of Neurology, and has just gotten back from an international conference on Alzheimer's disease, the 2010 International Conference, uh, and he's here to talk about how, here to talk about Alzheimer's, there's a lot, I guess a lot of new medication, a lot, the, the whole scoop. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Lauren. It's great to be with you and to uh, talk to you about what is, uh, I think, a very important um, disease and condition that's going to affect a lot of us over the years. And, uh, and what are the stats, Doctor? How much? Because I know that's all, uh, you know, it's in the news all the time, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. How many people is, is it going to affect? And it affects, obviously, not just the patient, but the caregivers as well. Exactly, exactly. I think that that's sometimes lost among the statistics. Um, Alzheimer's is a disease, and uh, it's not the same as just normal aging. We understand that now, and we didn't understand that, you know, a number of years ago. Uh, currently, the estimates uh, are five to six million people are affected uh, directly by Alzheimer's disease, and in the next 30 to 40 years, that number is expected to increase to 11 to 16 million people. It's not because it's a communicable disease, people aren't catching it. It's simply because the baby boomers are aging and they're living longer. And the, and the major risk factors uh, for Alzheimer's are uh, age and family history. Uh, and that's true for many of the chronic illnesses like, you know, diabetes and heart disease and cancers that tend to affect older people. That's a question uh, that everybody wants to know. Is it hereditary? Are you saying that it is family history? I mean, can you, if your parents, ha- your parents may have had it, but it may not have been diagnosed as Alzheimer's. It could have been diagnosed just as general dementia because they didn't have the tools to diagnose it. Right, right, that's right. And um, um, so the the, the first answer is yes, their their genetics is definitely involved, uh, environment's involved. What we do certainly in middle age in many ways uh, can also help us or hurt us later on. Um, If one has a first-degree relative, let's say a brother, sister, uh, parent with known Alzheimer's disease, uh, our, you know, the, then one's uh, risk of developing it is at least fourfold, so four times. And um, uh, and you're exactly right. You know, a hundred years ago, people didn't live uh, on uh, often to be 80 years old. Average lifespan was about 50 something. Uh, and now that's changed. 
Uh, and also the recognition change that as people get older, they shouldn't just become, quote-unquote, what they used to call senile. Mm-hmm. And they used to say, well, that person's old, and therefore they're senile, and they, they sort of equated those two things together. And we really understand that that's just not true. People can, can live in very healthy, cognitively healthy lives uh, well into their 80s and 90s. And, um, um, and that what back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago used to be called hardening of the arteries, uh, That's the term I knew, hardening of the arteries. And that was kind of used for anything when somebody got older and they weren't quite, you know, as normal or they, you know, weren't quite as mentally healthy as they used to be. You'd say it was hardening of the arteries. That's right. That and, was the generic and, term. And but the pendulum has swung to, yeah. to realize that Alzheimer's disease is probably uh, the culprit for most of these uh, uh, dementias. And that certainly, uh, you know, uh, the, what, what affects the blood vessels and the heart will affect the brain. So what's good for the blood, uh, blood vessels, the heart is, is going to be good for the brain, and conversely what's bad is going to be bad for the brain. Um, so there is a, uh, at least an additive effect of these things. But, you know, we've identified Alzheimer's disease as a separate entity. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... Uh, so how do we recognize it? It's a separate entity, the layperson, you know, not the doctor, not... Sure. Not your colleagues, but just us, the lay people. We have older parents. Uh, how can we, I mean, when we see, I have a lot of questions, but first of all, how do we just as lay people, are we to recognize that someone in our family may be beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's? Sure. The first thing is to actually have it on your radar, uh, to believe, to understand that we can't sort of um, explain away every change that we see in people who are, who are older. So, uh, you know, if somebody was never good at remembering names to begin with, and they're still not good at remembering names, that's not a change. But if someone who is older is starting to be more forgetful, to repeat stories, um, to develop difficulty following a plan, uh, or is, is becoming confused with, you know, time, orienta- orientation to time, with respect to their judgment, if they're showing changes in their mood or personality or they seem more withdrawn from social activity, lack initiative, and all these things are starting to really affect their uh, daily life and the routine and completing daily tasks, um, then that can't be just explained away by uh, normal aging. And I but think old one... people always tell the same stories over <laughs> and over, partly because their world becomes smaller and they don't have new stories to tell. Well, um, part of that is, is true, but the other part is that, um, you know, that could also be a very early sign of so them not starting to form new memories. And, and that's the issue, is that uh, oftentimes in earlier stages, even the mid-stages of Alzheimer's disease, people can remember things from 30 to 40 years ago really well. They can recite poetry. They could be sharp in doing a lot of things and yet they may not actually really be able to track current events very well and get confused. So, um, you know, that's really, really important to have, you know, to have that radar be up. Um, and then if, if that's the case, to see a clinician, a physician, uh, somebody who deals with this, and to get an evaluation, because the first step in management and care is diagnosis. And by management and care, I don't mean, you know, just giving medications. We have medications, and we can talk about, we should talk about that a little bit also, about the expectations of what we've, we were understanding the last few years about the stuff. But by management, I really also mean multifactorial uh, management of education for the patient, shoring up support systems, um, caring for the caregivers, uh, coordination of their care, the really important role of um, uh, of a whole team of people, including social workers, um, psychological support, 
uh, home safety, preparing for the future, and then also to get on appropriate medications, which are a combination of, of two medicines that we have right now that affect two different kind of chemical systems in the brain, that the two different medications are cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine, and also to get off all the kinds of medications that may be actually detrimental to their cognitive function that they may not know about. Um, and then also to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's to make sure that things like hormone deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, sleep problems, strokes can also be managed so that people can actually live uh, longer and uh, more quality lives and, and deteriorate um, slower. All right, so that's the overall picture. Uh, just stepping back a little bit, you say it's really important to get to the right uh, physician. To, uh, yeah. Diagnosis is the most important thing. So yeah. let's say you're sitting here with grandma or your mother or whomever, and you're thinking, you know what, they, they kind of are, anyone who's listening, kind of like it fits in terms of the description you just gave of early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. Who do you go to? I mean, do you go to a primary care physician? Are they, cap- are they able to make this kind of a diagnosis? Or I mean, you don't go straight to neurologist at Mass General, do you? Do you? Oftentimes, no. That, 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 that doesn't occur very often. Um, uh, mind you, we do have some people who, who, are, who, are, who are very aware of it and on their radars, and they notice some changes, and they may, they may come in early. But that really is the exception. Oftentimes, um, patients themselves may not be aware of the changes. Um, years before, there are oftentimes changes with mood, uh, that they're diagnosed as depression, as clinical depression, but what the people are really seeing are changes in, um, in motivation and initiative and sleep uh, and behavior. Um, and so the answer is, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to go to a, uh, whether it's an internist, a geriatrician, um, and just say, look, I'm concerned about this, there are changes, and get a, get a screening test, a screening test of not just cognitive abilities, but also how functions may have changed, how behavior may have changed, um, how they may need more supports. Um, and, and there are good tests that, um, that can be administered by, um, uh, primary care doctors who, could, who, you know, who know how to do this stuff um, and to take the time to actually make the diagnosis or at least refer. Um, but, the, again, the importance of, of, of diagnosing early is to, to have the education, to shore up the supports. And, unfortunately, I see people who um, end up in very, very bad situations, taken advantage of for many years, safety issues, uh, because they go under the radar for a very, very long time. They can go to you a physician. that has to do, doctor, though, with, with denial? I mean, it's really frightening to think that maybe you have Alzheimer's or your mother or your father does, so that you kind of, you're all, I mean, families tend to be in stages of denial. Well, they are just getting old. They're getting forgetful. They, right. You know, this is all the, the sort of the stuff that happens as you age and not wanting to face it. Like, it, there's something to do with having to break, nobody to, to break through that denial. Well, it's, um, uh, there are many reasons why people don't end up uh, getting diagnosed and treated early. And I think that's one of the things we, we're learning at these conferences is that still that is an issue. Um, and, um, and, yes, there, there may be stigma attached. There may be just misperceptions about what are the goals of treatment, what are the expectations, what can be done. Um, and what I can tell you that one of the things that we've learned in the last you know, few years is that um, as we work towards finding new treatments and, uh, and, and hopefully eventually cures, um, the process of getting to Alzheimer's dementia takes 10, 15, 20 years of disease process in the brain. And um, by that time, once we de- diagnose people, something really bad has happened, and a lot of the organ has failed. Uh, the brain has been damaged. 
And what we understand now is the treatments that we have, we have, as I mentioned to you, the, the two different types, the cholinesterol inhibitors and memantine. Um, we did a study at, Ma- at Massachusetts General Hospital at the Alzheimer's Center that looked at how the combination of these medications affect the cognitive abilities and abilities to carry out daily functions over years and years. And um, uh, some colleagues of ours, also at Alzheimer's Disease Center at uh, Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh, Oscar Lopez and, and his group, also looked at how taking this combination of medications would affect later placement in nursing home and death. And then some other colleagues, Dr. Roundtree and Dr. Duty and, and Baylor, looked at if you go on these medications and stay on the medications, how does that affect your long-term sort of prognosis? And all these studies came out in the same direction, that over years, unfortunately, the disease progresses. It's not the medication stop working. The disease progresses. Um, the, what happens is that the medications decrease the, the, the pace of the, of, of the worsening. So uh, people who go on and stay on the medicines tend to do you know, better on cognitive tests and functional tests than people who don't years down the line. They end up, at, and they end up in, the, in the last stages uh, later, so they get placed in nursing homes later. Uh, and that's a stage where you need 24-hour care. There's, um, you know, a lot of costs associated with that. Um, and, uh, and also what they showed is that once you get to that last stage, the medicines don't prolong your life. It's just that they're sort of buying you a better quality and, 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 and a lower progression in between. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? We have to take a short break. No problem, sure. Yeah, because I have a question. I mean, you're talking about the medications, but when we come back, I'd also like you to address what you talked about at the beginning of the show, that there are environmental things as well in combination with the drugs that you can do. Absolutely. That. Yeah. Uh, I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone with Lauren Della Blake, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, and we are talking to Dr. Ali Atri from Mass General Hospital, and the topic is Alzheimer's disease. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Best Boomer Towns delivers the inside scoop on the best 21 places to relocate or retire in the U.S. Listen to columnists, town bloggers, and local residents as we highlight a town each week. Talk show host Nancy Shaka brings you the best and the brightest. As a baby boomer, you experienced Beatlemania, Woodstock, Vietnam, and the women's movement. Today, you're educated, health-minded, and thinking about where to spend your future. Tune in at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, to Best Boomer Towns every Thursday on the Voice America Variety Channel and start planning the best rest of your life. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. 
Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio, and my co-host, Lauren Beller-Blake. The topic is Alzheimer's disease, and our expert is Dr. Allie Atree, MD, Ph.D. from Mass General Hospital, uh, Department of Neurology in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and, Doctor, before we uh, took the break, you were, well, we were discussing some of the, the new medications that one can take. It doesn't cure the disease, but it yep. helps prolong... A, prolong the, the symptoms, I guess. Uh, but also, uh, there are things that one can do, environmental things, leading, I assume, a healthier lifestyle that will sure. help to also uh, prevent sufferers from Alzheimer's from the disease progressing as quickly. Um, so we can, there's something that we can do as well besides taking medication. Right. So, so you're right. The medications tend to uh, over years and years, decrease the pace of the illness uh, as far as the symptoms go, sort of, uh, you know, uh, lessening uh, and slowing the, the, the decline. Um, one thing that's actually, I think, important for your viewers also is that, you know, women are disproportionately affected um, because they live longer. Um, and there are many things that we can do in middle age that um, we understand that they don't prevent the disease in the brain. Again, we're understanding that the disease starts, the process starts 10, 15, 20 years before people show symptoms. Um, but so what we can do... maybe in your 40s? 40s, 50s, 60s, yes. I mean, most people will uh, um, show symptoms in their late 60s, early 70s for the most part. Um, but we're understanding that, that probably the changes are starting to occur as early as 15 to 20 years beforehand. And, and it's sort of a progressive uh, condition that ultimately, um, you know, it comes to a point where uh, people aren't just uh, becoming forgetful on, on memory tests that's given to them, but it's actually affecting their daily function. So the things that you can do to, I would say, uh, uh, not, again, prevent the disease per se, but to actually delay the symptoms, to, give, to protect the brain in some ways, uh, from dealing with the damage that occurs or things that have to do with um, social activity, physical activity, mental activity, protecting the heart and the blood vessels. Whatever is good for the heart and the blood vessels is good for the brain. And conversely, what's not good for the heart and blood vessels is not good for the brain and decreases one's capacity from fighting and overcoming the, the, the damage that one accumulates during Alzheimer's disease. So, now, how can we make it, because I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, oh, my God, in your 40s, I could, you know, you could, it, you know, I had to worry about heart disease. Now I have to worry about Alzheimer's. That could be happening. Right. I'm sure people are thinking, is there anything that I can look for? You know, I have to exercise, eat well, do all the good stuff that you say that's good for your well, heart and sure. for your head. 
Yep. Make sure make sure that your blood pressure is treated. Again, that's a risk factor, and um, uh, the the glucose is okay. So preventing diabetes, um, cholesterol, making sure your cholesterol is good, not smoking, not incurring damage to the brain. Uh, everything from you know wearing a helmet when you're uh, riding a bicycle to uh, um, you know repetitive injuries in sports uh, that it could even affect you later in life. Getting good sleep. Uh, a lot of people have sleep issues and, and, and obstructive apnea, for example, that can damage the brain over years and years. Um, stress. Stress is a big thing, actually, that we know over years and years our bodies are not meant to be under constant stress. And the, the, the hormones that are secreted actually affect the brain and shrink parts of the brain. That are that's cortisol? Cortisol is part of that. And also as part of that, what happens is that it, you decrease what we call neurogenesis. So the ability to actually make new cells and make new connections goes down um, during you know, times of high stress. And if, you're current, you know, if, you're, if you are chronically in that high stress, it really uh, you know, tips the balance between what cells you're losing and what things you're, you're, you're trying to make up. And um, so all those things can, 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 can help. And even in your later life, um, there are studies from ICAD, from this conference, that looked at um, uh, mental effort and mental activity, physical activity in older adults, um, and how it affected you know, uh, their quality of life and their performance on, on kinds of tests, and how it generalized to actually other activities. So um, there are things we can do. We're not impotent uh, against this disease, which unfortunately, as I mentioned, is going to affect you know, you know, millions and millions of people. Uh, you know, over, over the next uh, decade or more. And for each one of those people, there's a caregiver, a spouse, a daughter, um, you know, uh, a loved one who is going to be affected emotionally, physically, uh, mentally, and very much economically. Uh, yeah, financially, uh, that's a, yeah. you mentioned that last, but that's a big one. So we don't a have huge one. victims is what you're saying. What is the pro- uh, we're sort of doing this at the end, but exactly what is the process? You get all this sort of, glue and guck in your brain and it kind of um, ruins the work? You mean the cause, the, the cause? You know, we're still trying to understand the absolute root cause. I think what we've understood in the last 15 years, 10 years especially, is that there are proteins called amyloid protein that are made in the, in the body, in the brain, and um, some of them are made too much and some of them are actually not uh, taken, get, gotten rid of in an efficient way as time goes on and people, people age. And that, that, that also contributes to the process of Alzheimer's disease, the pathology, the damage to the brain, the inflammation, and then affects another kind of protein in the brain called tau, which literally strangles the, the neurons and nerve cells from within. Uh, but this is all occurring, you know, slowly over time. And, uh, you know, at first people are, you know, these sticky things are going around, inside the brain itself and causing damage to the synapses. These are the, the areas where the nerve cells uh, connect to each other. And, um, and that, that, could be, that could start in one's 50s oftentimes. I have a question. This is uh, maybe the question to, we only have a few minutes left, but because we have, well, we have an aging society, so we're going to have more of this, obviously, people over 65 living longer and women in particular, but we also yeah. have an obese society. What yeah. is this obesity and being not just fat, but obese, and you have half, I'm making up the statistic, but you know, 50% of the people are now getting into the category of obesity. Does this affect how, Alzheimer's in any way in terms of sure. the... 
Sure. Long term, certainly, as you know, um, you know, having a certain kind of uh, obesity, particularly the kind that's around the belly, around the organs, is um, is very bad. It's associated with this thing called the metabolic syndrome, and obviously with glucose intolerance and what we call hyperinsulinemia, and all those things are implicated not just in uh, damages to, to you know blood vessels and the heart. Um, but also in directly in the processed amyloid proteins. So um, they uh, tip the balance um, in, in favor of having these, you know, the bad toxic kind of amyloid proteins uh, in the brain. So absolutely, I think, you know, all those things from a population standpoint should be addressed. And if, you, if you're somebody who wants to, you know, you have a family history, uh, it's never too late. You know, um, you can't, you know... They say, you know, you, you know, you can't choose your your parents. That's that's done, but you certainly can do other things. To... And you've mentioned so many things that we have to say goodbye. We only have thirty seconds left. Sure. So, Dr. Ali Atri, MD, PhD, Mass General Hospital. We're talking about Alzheimer's. Just give us a website, maybe, that we could go to for more information uh, sure. about what we've been talking sure. about so, today. Sure. Short, short messages. You know, get 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 to the clinician uh, if you if you think you're at risk. Get the, get the diagnosis uh, and, and also get the treatments you need. And the best place would be Alzheimer's Association, ALZ.org. Great. I really I learned a lot, and I know my listeners did too, so thank you so much for being on the show this morning, Doctor. I appreciate it. Thank you yeah. very much for having me, Catherine and Lauren. Bye-bye. Thank you. Be well. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show with Lauren Deller-Blake on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. I hope you had a great day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.